Well, this morning, we want to conclude our series, Responding to Jesus. And it was during this first century time period when the responses to Jesus were as mixed and varied as they are today. Because our faith is one that is not blind, right? Our faith is not something that we just kind of made up to believe, to believe that we just made up to pacify some problem, that we had a problem in the world, we had an observation of the world, and so we created this kind of solution that we think might fix the problem. No, we had something quite opposite of that. In fact, many people don't even realize they have a problem. Right? Many people don't even realize that there is a separation between them and God. Many people don't realize that there's a world that needs to be restored. And so as we live our lives, we're kind of tempted to respond to this time in history in various ways. And how you're responding to Jesus is um, very important to how you're going to live the rest of your life, even if you don't realize, even if that, that response is to just kind of ignore because that's most of the people's response today because we're 2,000 plus years past this point in history. And I always, when I teach the Bible, I, I always want people to remember that this is like, this is a history book, if, if it's nothing else to you. Now, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, therefore I believe in everything that he said about himself and everything he said about what we call our Old Testament, and then what was written about him by the eyewitnesses, and we call that our New Testament. See, because I believe in the resurrection, I believe that this book is at least a history book, but it's more than that. If I didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, I would just see this as an ancient account of history, a very limited account of history, um, a Jewish kind of account of history, and then I would push it back to the first century where it came from, and I would leave it there with Philo and Tacitus and Josephus, the other first century historians. I would just leave them there, and I would say, well, thank you for getting us that far, and it's interesting to kind of know what took place back there, and it's interesting to kind of study that and look at that and learn lessons, but it's nothing more than just historical document. It's at least that. But if it is that, if the Bible is at least a historical document, it deserves some attention. And if it deserves some attention, as you read it as a historical document, as consider what it says, it starts to say things that kind of sound crazy, that sound like, wait, what, what were these people drinking during this time? What were they like, how were they so deluded mentally and spiritually and emotionally that they come to kind of believe in this stuff? Because it says, like, some crazy stuff all throughout the book. In fact, you can, instead of writing a book about how crazy the Bible is, you could just say, read this. It's crazy. I mean, the stuff that we find in there is nothing short of sometimes disturbing and sad, sometimes horrifying, sometimes grotesque, and other times glorious and beautiful and amazing. So we start to read this book, but then we realize that it 
it's all centered around this one figure. And that figure is Jesus of Nazareth. And this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who they believed to be Mary's son, they weren't quite sure about who his dad was. Um, There were a lot of rumors about who his dad was. In fact, his mom made this kind of crazy claim that an angel of the Lord came down and spoke to her and that the old Holy Spirit overshadowed her and she miraculously become pregnant without physically knowing a man. Well, the response of that was kind of nutty and people were like, no. And one of the quite craziest rumors that came up of that day was that's the story she used to tell that she had an affair with a Roman soldier and Jesus was not really even wholly Jewish And at one point, the Pharisees come to Jesus and we say, we know who your mother and brothers are, but they don't say anything about his dad. So there's like this guy in the first century that his mom makes a crazy claim. There's all kind of rumors that his mom is just not that nice of a lady and we really don't know who Jesus' dad is and we have a word for that, right? And so there's all these crazy things. And then this guy at around 30 years old, he, he, he starts to teach and he starts to go into the temple and he starts to teach kind of like a rabbi of the day, but with more power and more authority. And he reads the scroll of Isaiah in the temple, and then he sets it down, and he says, today in your sight this prophecy has been fulfilled. And he literally claims that this guy, who they don't even know who his dad is, they claim, he makes this claim that he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And and then he goes on further than that. He goes a step further, not that that wasn't crazy enough, is that he makes this statement that he says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And he goes on in that same context in John chapter 8 to say that, oh, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, he says, before Abraham was even born, I'm the all-existing one. He's saying these crazy things. And there's all sorts of responses. Some people are following him very intimately, believing that they have found the Messiah. Other people are scratching their heads going, who is this guy? Other people are, we have to get rid of him because he's taking all of our fun away. (laughs) He's taking all of our authority away. The religious leaders of the day were saying, we got to get rid of this Jesus. And then towards the end of his life, he, it's claimed that he raises this man Lazarus from the dead. And then he makes this statement to Lazarus' sister, and he says this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? And she goes, I believe that. And then he's arrested because once he raised Lazarus from the dead and that story kind of got out, the religious leaders had had enough. They're like, we've got to kill this guy. It's not enough to trick him. It's not enough to make him look foolish. It's not enough to try to derail his teachings. We have to get rid of this guy. We have to kill this guy. So because they're under the hand of Rome, they have to get Roman permission to kill Jesus and they get that permission and they kill him. And then those who had followed Jesus the closest were devastated. And they thought maybe the rumors about him and his mom are true. Maybe he was just some random Roman soldier's dad. And maybe maybe he was crazy. And maybe he was a liar. Or maybe he was even something worse. Maybe he was even demonic as some claim that he was even from Satan himself. So you had all of these responses. And then something took place. Because what followed his death and his crucifixion, which nobody denies took place. No historian of the first century, second, third, fourth, fifth, all the way to today. No one denies that this guy Jesus of Nazareth 
but we don't really know, and there's going to be a lot of questions and all these responses and all these opinions, right? That something happened in the first century that changed the mind of somewhere between 12 and 120 people. Something took place on the first day of the week following his crucifixion. We call that day Sunday. Something happened on the first day of the week that these people began to spread this other response. They began to go tell everyone that this Jesus, who some thought was crazy, some thought was from the devil, some thought was all these opinions, this guy, he's back. Like he literally, like, rose from the dead like he, he he was dead and everyone knew it and now he's and now he's back and he appears to over 500 people but by the time we get to the book of acts there's about 120 there are about 120 people and it's about 50 days later 50 days in, in fact <laughs> later and there's all these responses again but people have come from all over jerusalem to celebrate the passover and then this group of 120 people they experienced something that radically changed them again. And they began to speak in all these different languages and testify in all these different languages that this Jesus had raised from the dead. And then that group of people that was from all over the world in Jerusalem on that Passover, they then were so powerfully impacted by that story that they went back to their homes in various parts of the world and the entire world was radically changed. So ladies and gentlemen, I have spoken to you nothing today about faith so far. I haven't even begun to talk about Christianity. I'm just giving you a very brief history lesson that something happened. Something radical happened in the first century. Even the fact that we would call it the first century. Something happened. And within 300 years, the world had so been convinced, so many in the world had been convinced that this Jesus of Nazareth is raised from the dead, that a politician actually used Christianity to unify a kingdom, and promote his political agenda. We call him Constantine. And he thought to him, he didn't believe in Jesus. But he found in the Roman Empire that this news about Jesus was so powerful and had so, so radically permeated the mindset of his ununified kingdom that he thought, there's one way I can unify the Roman kingdom. There's one way. Through making Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and then I'll have unity, then I'll have control. So that's what he did. So what happened in the first century? Oh, there are a lot of opinions, and let me give you just a few false, few kind of insufficient ones. Not false, not bad, not wrong, really, but just kind of insufficient. They start off like this. This man, Thomas, who you just saw this video on, before Jesus' death and resurrection, as Jesus was headed towards Jerusalem, Thomas was full of courage and full of bravery. And he said, in John eleven sixteen, he said, Thomas, so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So he had all this courage, let's just go. If Jesus is going to Jerusalem and they want to kill him in Jerusalem, but he's still going, let's go with him. So Thomas wasn't weak-minded, he wasn't scared, he wasn't... He didn't lack courage. He didn't lack bravery. He was ready to go. But see, that kind of bravery and that kind of bravado and that kind of machismo, it didn't get him very far because as soon as Jesus died, he's like, I'm out. Forget it. Meet if you want. I'm out. I'm going back to my former way of life. Everything that we thought about the guy, no good. 
So he's out. A second insufficient response is really this kind of idea that is prevalent today, that we really don't need to come up with any conclusions, we just need to have a discussion. You hear people saying that all the time about all kinds of different discussions and different topics. Well, it's not so much as that we know the truth about Jesus, but let's just be able to have a dialogue. And let's bring all the different faiths together and all the different ideas together and let's just get along and let's have a dialogue and let's have a talk. But where's that dialogue leading? Nowhere. Just, let's just talk. Thomas, again, is kind of an example of that because at one point, Jesus, as he's talking about going into Jerusalem and he's, Jesus is talking about his death, resurrection, and ascension, and he says, you guys know the way and you know where I'm going. But Thomas says this in verse 5. He said, Thomas says to the Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how do we know the way? Oh, that's okay. You don't need to. No, he, he actually said, but how do we know? And he had already said, I'll go to Jerusalem and die with you. But then when Jesus starts talking about his death, resurrection, and ascension, Thomas, and Thomas goes, dude, we don't know. What are we doing? Where, where are we going? We, Jesus, and when Jesus says, you guys know, and he's like, no, we don't. We don't know. We don't know anything. Because we can't come to any conclusions. Because we just don't know. That's just an insufficient response. So I'll die for Jesus. I'll die for God. Well, all right, but as soon as something bad happens, you probably will change your mind. Just sitting around and saying, hey, let's have this grand conversation. No, sooner or later, we have to know something. Sooner or later, we have to come to some kind of conclusion. It's not good enough to just say, I know something took place 2,000 years ago. How in the world would I know? I don't know. Kind of go to church, kind of works for me. Yeah, I'll go to church until one of my prayers doesn't get answered. Then, eh. See you later. We'll just kind of ditch that. And then another insufficient response is, I believe in God. I'm glad you believe in God. That's good. But in James chapter 2, verse 17 to 20, we read this statement. You believe in God, that God is one? You do well. That's good. But even the demons, demons believe and shut. So just this kind of belief in God, well, that's, that's not going to get you anywhere. So if you have any of these or a million other weird responses to Jesus, he was a good teacher, he was a wise rabbi, he was this, he was that, he was just a good man, all these different responses, they're all insufficient. Why would I say they're insufficient? Because they ignore the evidence. They ignore the evidence. And when you consider Jesus, and when you think about your response to Jesus, and when you think about your response to this event that took place 2,000 years ago, what is your response? Oh, I believe in God. Well, that, that, that's good. <laughs> the devil do that. Oh, I'll die for Jesus. Well, that's okay. Well, I don't know. I just, I just think all religions are the same, and we just need to all get along, and we need to put coexist bumper stickers on our car, and we just need to have like a dialogue. I don't need my wife to sit around and talk about making dinner. Good grief, would you put something on the table? Talking about it's not going to help. She's not in here, is she? Okay, we're all right. And somebody put cupcakes out there. But they're out there. And I'm going to have one after church. But it would have done no good for her just to talk about it. Or him, I don't know who made him. Would you make your husband? I don't know. I wouldn't do us any good to just sit around and talk about him. It doesn't do us any good to sit around and talk about anything. Eventually, you're going to have to do something about it. And I think that that's where God wants you to settle in this morning. That you're going to have to do something about this. And I'm going to submit to you 
based on the evidence. And I sift through the evidence and I continue to look at the evidence. But I challenge you to start looking at the evidence. And I believe that if you give an honest look at the evidence, that the only proper response is my Lord and my God. That's the only one. Not I'll die for you. Not I'll have a discussion about you. Not I believe in God, but really don't know what that is. My my Lord and my God. That's the proper response. That's where I believe the evidence will lead you. So I am not here this morning to kind of preach at you or yell at you or get all excited about you and try to convince you to make this decision for Jesus today. My goal is not to get you to make a decision. And you might say, well, that's not very wise, preacher. You're you're supposed to drive people to a decision. No, I'm not. My call to you today is to simply look at the evidence. And I believe that when you take an honest look at the evidence of Jesus Christ, that you will come to the same conclusion that Thomas came to. I believe that you will come to the same conclusion that I've come to and many others. Because truth is the only thing that has power to change anybody's life at all. What is true? Something is true. Something happened. You can't have it both ways. Either Jesus resurrected from the dead or he didn't. All the world historians say that there was this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He lived. He had followers. He was killed at the hands of the Jews by the Romans. And it happened. And there it is. And that happened. And then something else radically happened three days later. So what exactly happened? Look at the evidence. And if you've never explored the evidence, maybe the fact that evidence is available is new to you. Maybe you thought that Christianity is just this blind kind of faith that if you were raised in a home that believed in this stuff, then you believe in this stuff. Maybe you are now following Jesus because something took place in your life and you were having a rough time. A Christian came in, loved on you, solved the problem for you, so now you're a Christian. And maybe you don't even know that that your faith that you have in Jesus is rooted in an actual historical event with verifiable evidence that leads to a definite conclusion. That's Christianity. A real historical event that radically changed the world in which everyone now responds. And every world religion has a response about this guy, Jesus. Every one of them. The Muslims believe that Jesus of Nazareth didn't die. The Muslims believe that there was a substitute, that Jesus went into hiding, a substitute was delivered up before Pilate and so forth and went through the trial and was crucified on the cross, dead, buried. Jesus came back out of hiding. Here I am. That's the Muslim faith. That story was introduced 600 years after the fact. You may not have known that, but the Muslim faith began 600 years after Jesus with a claim about Jesus And Muhammad said, Jesus is a wonderful prophet, but I'm the final prophet. Listen to me. Where we disagree, listen to me. Hmm. Look at the evidence. Just look at the evidence. Follow where it leads. The Hindu nations and Hindu faith is an older faith, older than Judaism, older than Christianity. They believe that when Jesus reached the age of roughly 30, 33, that he didn't die on a cross, he left Israel. And he went into India and became a fully enlightened human being and then came back to Israel and begun what we know as Christianity. 
Well, that, that's a different thing, isn't it? Different thing all the way around. Jews believed that Jesus was a rabbi gone mad, <laughs> rabbi gone crazy, and so they did away with him as they should have, and he didn't resurrect. Christians believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies and the why God raised up Abram, changed him to Abraham, formed the nation of Israel out of this family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons of Jacob, 12 sons of Israel. Then you have your nation. And then he made promises to the world that he was raising up that nation to bless all other nations. And Jesus is the answer. And Jesus resurrected to bring hope to the world. See, all of those that I just told you are very, very different. So which one's right? It's not a guessing game. It's not an opinion. We can't just sit around and have talk, talks about it and say, oh, so you're a Muslim. Oh, good. So Jesus didn't die then. And I've had Muslim students in my classroom as a high school teacher. One of my favorite ones was this young lady who was an amazing basketball player. Her name was Ma. Had a conversation with Ma one day in the classroom with about 30 or 40 other kids. And I said, Ma, can I have a conversation with you right now in front of everybody? She's like, sure. And I said, do you believe this about Jesus? And I told her what I just told you. And I said, is that correct according to your belief system? And she said, yes, Mr. Rob, that's true. And I said, well, I don't believe that. I believe something. I believe that Jesus did die. And then I said, is it okay, Ma, today in front of these, the, your fellow students to say one of us is wrong? And she goes, yeah, one of us is, Mr. Robs. I believe you are. And I said, yeah, I love you, Ma, but I believe you're wrong. After that discussion, she wrote on the, my whiteboard as she left, Ma is Mr. Hobbs' favorite Muslim student. She might have been right. We had plenty of wonderful dialogues until after her, her time at our school was coming to an end, and she said, Mr. Hobbs, you've made me think, because I used to think that this was just a matter of opinion and that you had your faith and I had mine. But she says, actually, we can't believe that, can we? Somebody's wrong. Yeah, someone's wrong. Because just having a discussion isn't enough. So follow the evidence. Some find it difficult to do what I'm asking you to do because you've been let down by Jesus, right? So some find it difficult to positively respond to Jesus in the way that I'm asking the Lord, my Lord and my God because you need a personal encounter such as Thomas needed a personal encounter. I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to John 20. I want to camp out there for just a few moments. And I don't know how much. I was asked, telling the team beforehand, I've got way too much here to preach in one day. We'll see how much we do. And then when I feel it's time or I look at your faces and you're going like this, then we'll quit. Don't start doing that now. I know you just don't do it now. John chapter 20 if you have your Bibles today, I want you to open to that passage. We'll kind of move through there, and then I will bounce around to some others. Some others will be on the screen, but John 20 will be there in your hands, okay? So John 20, verses 24 and 25 say this. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means the twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks on his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Because I know I said that I'll go die with Jesus, but he's dead and that I'm not believing. I was with him, saw the miracles, saw the teachings, saw all that he did, knew that Lazarus was raised from the dead. I saw it all, but now that Jesus is dead, I don't believe anymore. He needed a personal encounter. The words of other people were not enough. The words of eyewitnesses was not enough. He was not going to take anyone's, need, anyone's word for it at all. He needed a personal encounter with Jesus. So notice what takes place in verse 26 through 28. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. 
Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. So Jesus gave him that personal encounter. Gave him what he asked for. Gave him what he needed because he's a word of others. Couldn't take it. He was so devastated. It's not that he didn't have enough evidence. He was just so hurt that the evidence no longer mattered. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're not like me. I'm a very fact-based, linear kind of thinker. I follow evidence. I want information. I want conclusions. Take your feelings and throw them out the window because they don't matter a hill of beans. To me, I need evidence. That's where I land. Oh, but that's so sad. Don't care. Oh, that's exciting. Wonderful. What's the evidence? Oh, but it looks so amazing. Don't care what's in it. I don't care if when you give me a gift, and you can give me gifts whenever you want. Um, when you give me gifts, I, I, I don't care about bows and paper and bags. and th- That's a waste of money. I just want the information. I want the facts. I want, I want what, what is it? <laughs> and so that's what Thomas needed. But see, then the proper response to a personal encounter then with Jesus is to surrender to the identity his identity as Lord and Christ once you have this personal converse, confrontation with Jesus the only response is according to his identity who he is and I think all of us want that right don't you want people responding to you based upon who you are not their opinion of you not who they hope that you might be one of the biggest things of, of when a teenager becomes an adult is to kind of Tell their parents, hey, I know when I was born and you held me like this, you had all these dreams and you thought I was going to do this and I was going to be this. Well, I, I might want to do something else. You might have wanted me to be a doctor, but no. No, I'm going to go be a circus clown. Well, okay. <laughs> I'm going to go to, you know, I'm going to go to a junior college. You wanted me to go to Harvard? No, not interested. So we have all these things, right? This But Jesus is just asking us, would you respond to me based upon who I claim to be, who I am? And here's the evidence. Because as Jesus did that, see, Thomas makes this statement in this personal confrontation. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now that's an interesting, interesting statement. Did he just make that up? Did he just get really excited? Did he touch Jesus' hand and go, my Lord and my God? Was it just this like emotional outburst? No, that phrase meant something to the majority of Jewish people. It was kind of a common phrase. In fact, in John 1, we have this acknowledgement from John. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And, excuse me, the Word was God, and the Word was, what I do? That's out there. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on, as you read through that text, you see that the verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that person, Jesus, is God. That's who the Bible claims that he is. That's who he claimed to be. So when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he's going on this piece of information among others. But that's one. Paul also acknowledges Jesus as God in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. He says, For we look for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He's our great God and he's our Savior. So John said that. Paul said that. And God, as he inspired the author of the book of Hebrews, even God the Father claimed that Jesus was God himself. Notice it says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and a scepter of righteousness and the scepter of thy kingdom. Goes on to say that it would never end. So you have the Father calling the Son God. And I, we'll talk about Trinitarian theology another time, I know. That's like a what kind of thing, right? Thomas's response was also part of, part of their worship experience. During the time of Hosea, Hosea might have remembered this prophecy about Jesus, about their Messiah. It says, Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. So it was part of the promises. It was part of ingrained in their culture that this Messiah that they were waiting for was going to be both Savior and God and Lord. David understood this in his prayerful cry, which might have been kind of the prayer, because these psalms became their worship songs, but the psalms also became a source of prayer for them. They would read these as prayers back to God. Notice Psalm 35, 23, and 24. David says this, Awake and arouse yourself to my vindication for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. So when when Thomas made this statement, he was going back into his rich history of worship. He was going back into the promises that he knew were from God. And when he experienced a personal encounter with Jesus, his response was, I guess you're who you claim to be, and I guess you're who we've always been waiting for. I guess you are the fulfillment of all that our nation was ever raised up to be. Again, the evidence. It wasn't just an outburst. It wasn't just a response. It was something that was instilled deep within him and that came out once he had that personal relationship with Jesus. So the challenge then becomes for us that if you are like Thomas, finding it hard to respond to Jesus, I'm asking him for a personal encounter based upon what has been written of him. That's my prayer today for you. That I would say, Lord, I'm convinced, but I'm kind of a nerd. I've spent a lot of time with the evidence. And my conclusions about Jesus, I honestly believe, are evidence-based. And I've been through things. I've, I've experienced tragedy in my life. I've had a lot of questions. And that information has kept me anchored. That information, that evidence, has kept me rooted. Where I didn't abandon my relationship with God, where I didn't destroy my ministry, where I didn't destroy my family, the evidence kept me anchored. And so I'm praying that if you're finding it difficult today to believe in this first century event, this, this Jesus, I'm praying that he gives you a personal encounter that is in line with what has been written with him. There's an example of that taking place in Acts chapter 10. 
Acts chapter 10 still tells the story of Peter. It says this, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. He's gone to a home of a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile who, didn't be, who believed in God, but kind of was an outsider, was kind of like, I believe in God, but I don't know kind of what's going on. And this is a good probably 30 to about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so you have Peter's talking to him, and he does this. And Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand, in his conversation with Cornelius, that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know that what happened throughout all of Judea. So notice, it's Peter telling Cornelius, listen, you know what happened in Judea. Everybody knows what happened in Judea. That Jesus was arrested, he was delivered to the Romans, that he was crucified. Everybody knows. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of John, that John proclaimed, now God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised, excuse me, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all of the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still talking, here it is, here's the encounter that I'm praying happens for you. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So here was Peter saying, you know what happened. You know the evidence. This guy John came. He's preaching a baptism for repentance of sin. Jesus came. Jesus preached. Jesus did miracles. Jesus was arrested. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was raised from the dead. And I'm here to witness. I'm here to tell you. That's what happened. And as the words were coming out of Peter's mouth, the Holy Spirit encountered Cornelius in his home. And Cornelius had a personal encounter with God. And, per, and Cornelius and his entire household began to follow Jesus. So I understand my words are insufficient. You need an encounter with Jesus. And so I'm praying that he grants you that. And I would imagine, though there are some here this morning that may be struggling to believe in Jesus, there are others in here that you are so convinced that you could preach the same sermon that I just did. You have had a personal encounter and you have a personal living moment-by-moment moment relationship with Jesus. You have that. You...